Brent Landau is professor at the University of Texas in Austin. Brent and his colleague Jeffrey Smith have announced a discovery of an ancient apocryphal gospel. It's important for, first of all, rare copy of a Nag Hammadi text in Greek. And it's also important because of what seems to have been its function as a, as a text that was designed to help students learn to read and write. Plus, one of the first women to be ordained as a Baptist minister in the South, Jan Aldridge Clanton. How would I feel if I'd grown up singing, come let us adore her? So the first hymn I wrote was to, oh come all you faithful, was oh come Christ Sophia, full of grace and wisdom. When I took some of these hymns into our Dallas clergy women's group, I saw tears stream down their faces as they sang these hymns that included female divine names. Some told me this was the first time they truly felt they're created in the divine image. It's time for Progressive Spirit. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. Sound forth the news that wisdom comes to bring new life to birth. In this episode, I speak with one of the first women Baptist ministers uh, to be ordained in the South. She explores feminist spirituality in her ministry, theology, and music, Jan Aldridge Clanton. Words we sing, I think, have the greatest power to shape our beliefs and actions because the music embeds the words in our memories. But first, an interview with Brent Landau of the University of Texas at Austin. He is uh, with me via Skype to talk about a new discovery that uh, you introduced at the Society of Biblical Literature meeting in November. Can you tell me, uh, what did you discover? Sure. So my colleague, uh, Jeffrey Smith, uh, who's also at uh, UT, and I, what we discovered was a Greek copy of an early Christian writing known as the First Apocalypse of James. And it's an apocryphal text, so it wasn't included in the, in the, in the Bible, uh, that presents itself as Jesus's sort of last teachings to his brother James, who was the head of the Jerusalem church. We already knew about this text because it was part of the collection of writings known as the Nag Hammadi Library, which were a collection of Gnostic Christian writings that were discovered in Egypt in the year 1945. 
Now, those writings had been preserved in Coptic, and Coptic is an indigenous Egyptian language. And, but we were pretty sure that with these Nag Hammadi writings, that virtually all of them, we think, were probably originally written in Greek. The, the thing was that we had only ever found a few little Greek copies of several of these writings. So we found fragments of the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, um, and one other text called the Sophia of Jesus Christ. But now the first Apocalypse of James is actually the only the fourth writing from Nag Hammadi to have been discovered in Greek, which was its original language. Because you'd, you'd mentioned uh, in, in the news release that this text might have been used for teachers. Was this copy from the Coptic, or this, would this go trace back to perhaps original Greek of, of it, this document? Yeah, so we actually think that this was an original Greek form. We don't we don't think it was a retrojection, you know, from Coptic back into Greek. We think that probably what happened was that the Greek copy that we have from Nag Hammadi and also another copy from the codex that the Gospel of Judas was found in, that those Coptic versions of the first apocalypse of James were based on a Greek text of the first apocalypse of James, very much like the copy that we discovered. We think that this particular manuscript was used to teach students who, you know, could speak Greek, but couldn't necessarily read or write it. That was essentially what it was designed to do, because it's got these uh, mid dots for most of the manuscript that divide syllables from each other. So in the same way that today, one of the ways you teach you know, young children, how to learn to read, particularly with complicated words, is you ask them to sound it out by syllable. And that's essentially what this text would have been doing as well. So is there a way to date uh, the text that you have in hand? There is a way to do it. It's not it's not a sort of fail-safe method, but it's basically what's called paleography, which is the study of ancient handwriting. You can go to, you know, these sort of handbooks that essentially go through it century by century and say, okay, here's what handwriting from the first century looks like. Here's what handwriting from the second century looks like. And so that's essentially how we peg the date of the manuscript as fifth or sixth century on the basis of other manuscripts out there that had previously been dated to that time. And that's about, uh, what, a century after, a century or two after um Athanasius and uh, the orthodox uh, limiting of books. And so one of my questions is, uh, were these texts considered kind of off limits? I mean, we have the burying of them at Nag Hammadi, which kind of indicates that they're hiding them. I mean, uh, would this have been unusual to have this kind of text be used like that? The choice of a text like the first apocalypse of James is pretty interesting because many of the texts that would have been used for school exercises are sort of obvious classics like Homer's Iliad or Paul's letter to the Romans or Psalms or things like that. So if we're right in interpreting all the mid dots in this manuscript and saying that this was a teacher's model that was being used to teach students how to read and write, then it's a, it's a very unusual text to have selected for that purpose because it's not only much more obscure than Homer or Paul, um, but it's also it also would have been considered sort of heretical by uh, some, you know, by certainly by some early Christians in Oxyrhynchus. So for me, 
as a 21st century specialist in this sort of banned literature, this apocryphal literature, I look at this manuscript and see, you know, a teacher who decided that he was going to learn, uh, he or she was going to teach students to learn to read and write on the basis of, of this apocryphal text. I look at the writing and I say, I don't know who you are. I've never met you. I've only read what you've written, but I'm sort of in love with you because you're sort of doing in fifth or sixth century. <laughs> you're doing the same thing that I do today. Let's go back to actually what you physically found. I'm kind of fascinated by this. Tell me a little bit about where you found it. Oxford, I mean, you found it in the archives, right? I mean, uh, how does that happen? Aren't Isn't there like an archivist who knows where all this stuff is? Yeah, so the it's it's part of what's considered the Oxyrhynchus collection at Oxford. And basically the origins of this collection were that in the late 19th century, there were excavations going on in Egypt at a city called Oxyrhynchus. And a couple of Oxford professors journeyed to Oxyrhynchus, joined the excavation, and then um, started looking in the, in the town garbage dump. And the town garbage dump turned out to be just chock full of um, discarded papyrus manuscripts. Now, a lot of it was sort of what we might call sort of the, the, the ancient equivalent of sort of grocery lists or things like that, like a contract to sell somebody a donkey or a wagon or things like that. But some of the texts we discovered end up, you know, being literary texts or early Christian writings, canonical or apocryphal. So, you know, this has been, you know, one of the most, um, probably the biggest discovery of papyri from the ancient world it's been being published for about 120 years now. They've published about, I think, 5,300 texts from the Oxyrhynchus collection. But depending on who you talk to, there might be as many as 200,000 or 500,000 fragments of papyri from the Oxyrhynchus collection that are still sitting in tins or boxes at Oxford that, you know, nobody's looked at yet or that or if they've looked at them they've only looked at them you know very very quickly and then moved on to something more substantial so it's quite possible that there's other very interesting stuff like this out there unfortunately oxford's uh, oxyrhynchus collection is a bit of an old boys club it's not something where you can just sort of make an appointment if you're any sort of you know qualified scholar and go in and look at this stuff you have to almost sort of have an in. You have to know somebody who works on the collection, who can sort of approve your, you know, working on it yourself. That was essentially the connection that my colleague Jeff Smith had, that he had been uh, working there for a number of years before we started taking graduate students there um, uh, from, from University of Texas. The curator allowed him to look through some collections of um, some folders containing unpublished, presumably early Christian manuscripts. And this was one that jumped out at Jeff. And then he showed it to me because, you know, one of the most uh, legible fragments uh, at the very top of it says it has the phrase on the mountain of Golgotha. And we saw that and we thought, oh, geez. So it's actually that sounds like an apocryphal text or something, you know, um, pertaining to the story of Jesus. So we decided we, we really wanted to, to work on this. It had been a couple of years since we discovered it, and we, we still didn't know what the text was. 
because all the names, uh, all the uh, places where it mentioned the name James uh, had had been lost. And so it was only after a couple of years um, and looking at, you know, one of the other figures who was mentioned in the text, a disciple named Levi, that we actually made the connection and, you know, realized, oh, gosh, this is the first apocalypse of James. This is only the fourth uh, Nag Hammadi uh, text to be discovered in the original Greek. So there could be at, uh, at Oxford, at this archive, uh, a number of texts like this. Absolutely. You know, there are a number of very, very large um, collections of papyri, mainly in Europe, there could be just fascinating stuff in. So we've got Oxford. Oxford's where we're currently working. But there's a similar situation in Berlin where they brought papyri back from Egypt at the end of the 19th century. And a lot of that is still sitting in boxes and nobody's looked at it just because you know, there there just aren't that many people who have the training, and then also the interest in in sort of apocryphal texts. So, yeah. and also uh, the scholarly politics around it all. Sure, absolutely, and that's certainly been an issue with Oxford. Was there anything new that you found in your fragment of the Greek fragment of this first apocalypse of James that was different or filled in any holes that we already had with the Coptic text? I think if there is anything. Um, and Jeff was really the one who spent most of the time sort of collating and comparing the Greek text with with the Coptic versions. If there is anything, it's fairly minor. And so, you know, what the, the major contributions of this manuscript, it's not so much that it gives us, you know, large parts of the text that we didn't have before or anything like that. It doesn't have drastically new readings. It's important for, first of all, rare copy of a Nag Hammadi text in Greek. And it's also important because of what seems to have been its function as a, as a text that was designed to help students learn to read and write. Fascinating stuff. Brent uh, Landau of the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks for being with me today, Brent. Good to be with you, John. on Skype with Jan Eldridge Clanton. She is from Texas. She is a Baptist minister. In fact, one of the first women ever to be ordained as a Baptist minister in the South. She's written a number of books on feminist theology, as well as rewriting the words of hymns to familiar tunes that celebrate the divine feminine. And she's with me via Skype to talk about a number of her books, including a new book called Intercultural Ministry, Hope for a Changing World. Welcome, Jan, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you, John. In, in my worship service, I've used your hymns. I have two of the books. I don't have the third one, but I get that one too. I use Inclusive Hymns for Liberating Christians and Inclusive Hymns for Liberation, Peace, and Justice. And some of them are hymns to Christ Sophia. And let me ask you this question before we get started, because I, I was often asked this, and people would say, well, who are we singing to? Who is Christ Sophia? How do you answer that question? That's an excellent question, John. Thanks so much for asking that. Uh, 
there is a biblical and a historical connection between the Christ of the Christian uh, scriptures and wisdom in the uh, wisdom literature. Uh, wisdom is Hopmah in the Hebrew Bible and Sophia in the Christian scriptures. And uh, I've written a book called uh, In Search of the Christ, Sophia, and Inclusive Christology for Liberating Christians that explores the biblical and the historical connections, but just briefly a few of the uh, biblical connections. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians describes Christ as the power of God and the wisdom, Sophia, in the Greek language of God, and says that Christ became for us wisdom, Sophia, for, from God. John 14, 6 is the familiar description of Christ as the way and the truth and the life. And this parallels Proverbs 4, which describes wisdom as the path, the knowledge, the way that ensures life. Jesus identifies with wisdom when he says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom, Sophia, is vindicated by her deeds. So Christ Sophia is one Christological symbol that balances female and male divinity, which I believe is so important to our worship that we have this balance. Christ Sophia makes equal connections, obviously, between male and female in that Christ has traditionally been uh, and especially with the connection with the historical Jesus, a male divinity, and Sophia, a feminine personification of deity. And there's a connection between black and white. Sophia is often de depicted in uh, dark images, and there's a trajectory of Sophia from ancient Egyptian images, too, and the Black Madonna. And so I think this can uh, provide a model for uh, faith communities based on partnership instead of dominance and submission. I could go into a lot of the voices from Christian history that make this connection. Even a theologian such as uh, St. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages, who was not so friendly toward women, as you know. Mm. Uh, in fact, he called women misbegotten males. He was pretty misogynistic, but he could not deny this connection. And he called Christ our mother wisdom of God, uh, drawing from that biblical mother hen image of Christ, Christ's self-reference as a mother hen. So that's just one of the historical connections. I mind scripture and Christian history and theology to bring forth this connection. And then in that book also, I began providing worship resources, and then I've continued to do that, as you mentioned, through the hymns, because I believe it's so important, John, to take theology from the head to the heart. I want to talk about that, because that, that sometimes is very difficult for people uh, who have been well, raised with, uh, and, and, and who hasn't been, really? I mean, except just fair, almost, and you mentioned Thomas Aquinas, but that certainly isn't a dominant form. I mean, it's father-son spirit in some, some kind of male-oriented language for uh, divinity within, within Christian circles for, for so long that it's almost impossible. It's jarring for people um, to, to have feminine images, and that's, and that's part of the importance, isn't it, to jar us 
in one level to recognize that God is is beyond a specific gender, uh, and, and it's also to be inclusive to the wide variety of of human expression. Can you tell me more about the importance and and how you came to realize the importance, perhaps, of feminine imagery for God? I realized after my ordination that my call was expanding beyond adopting my own call toward ordained ministry and advocating for other women to looking at the foundation, the foundation of excluding women from ministry uh, was in this patriarchal notion of God as a male. And as you mentioned, our worship language, father, son, king, master, even though some might say God is spirit, our language is inscribing this male God. It became very evident to me the more I was trying to advocate for uh, women in ministry, how people connected this image of God. It's more pronounced in the Catholic tradition in which they see the minister as that direct uh, sacramental image of Christ, of God, but uh, also in uh, Protestant traditions as well. When I was feeling excluded and I I finished seminary at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now, is that the one in is that the one in Louisville, right? Uh, that's the one in Fort Worth. Fort Southern Worth is in Louisville. Okay. Uh, and this was before it had become more fundamentalist. But uh, I had all male uh, professors, and there was no call to begin with. And I remember driving back from seminary one day and thinking. Well, I think that my, and I'd begun to read some feminist theology, Virginia, Rami Mollenkotz, The Divine Feminine, and learning about some of these feminine images. So I thought, well, I'll just try it out. And one of the hymns that had been so important to me was, she leadeth me, uh, he leadeth me. And uh, so I uh, started singing, she leadeth me, and it began to take root in my heart how important that was to feel that God, our mother, was understanding my feelings. And then as I began to think about the hymns and in uh, worship services, trying to change some hymns, uh, but being drowned out by the congregation singing the traditional words, I thought, well, I'll just try my hand at this hymn to It was such an important part of my background as a Baptist in the Baptist church. I love singing hymns. So I began writing lyrics two familiar hymn tunes, uh, I began in an Advent season when all of the masculine images just felt like stones pelting my spirit, and I started wondering, how would I feel if I'd grown up singing, Come Let Us Adore Her? So the first hymn I wrote was to, Oh Come All You Faithful, it was Oh Come Christ Sophia, Full of Grace and Wisdom. When I took some of these hymns into our Dallas clergy women's group, I saw tears stream down their faces as they sang these hymns that included female divine names. Some told me this was the first time they'd truly felt they're created in the divine image. So I realized they were feeling what I felt when we uh, were included. Some people do 
use the term inclusive to mean gender neutral, they'll say to me, well, you know, God is certainly above male or female, so you're just being so trivial or sensitive. He is spirit, but yet, yet continuing to use those masculine pronouns. So the reason I think that it is so important to use the female is that that feminine has been excluded. So when I use the term inclusive, I mean language inclusive of female and male and more. Also, I use expansive and gender balanced. A friend of mine, Presbyterian pastor Rebecca Kaiser, calls this language gender full rather than gender less language for deity. And I also use the analogy of the Black Lives Matter movement. Though all lives matter, we need to name that black lives matter because they've not mattered enough in our culture. So we also need to name females in the divine image, though all the genders, of course, are in the divine image. But the female divine has not been named and valued. So I think we need to name that which has been unnamed, demeaned, devalued, and oppressed. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. I'm speaking with Reverend Jan Aldridge Clanton, and we continue our conversation after the break. guest is Jan Aldridge Clanton from uh, Dallas, Texas. She, her webpage is janaldridgeclanton.com, a writer of uh, over 15 books, including a number of hymn books. Her latest hymn book is Earth Transformed with Music, Inclusive Songs for uh, Worship. Tell me a little bit more uh, about the, the hymns themselves, and, and maybe pick one that, that is recent to you or meaningful to you, or also, you mentioned, Oh, Come, uh, Let Us Adore Her. Tell me, Give me some more. Yes, uh, I believe hymns are so important. Words matter. Uh, <sighs> words we use in our faith communities carry great power because of the sacred value we give mm-hmm. them. And words we sing, I think, have the greatest power to shape our beliefs and actions because the music embeds the words in our memories. So several of the songs, and I have collaborated with Larry E. Schultz, who is a composer. He's Minister of Music at Pula Memorial Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And he's written some new tunes for some of my words, but most of my songs are to familiar hymn tunes. For instance, this is one in Earth Transformed with Music that I originally wrote to the tune of Great is Thy Faithfulness, 
but then discovered that that tune is still in public domain and I couldn't get permission for. So anyway, I, I have just the words that can be sung to greatest our faithfulness, but Larry uh, wrote a beautiful new tune to this. The words are follow her peaceful ways, join holy wisdom, changing the world with her kindness and grace, blessing all cultures, all genders and races, welcoming all in her loving embrace. Many throughout the world suffer from violence, hunger, oppression, and plundering of earth. Wisdom cries out with a voice full of longing, join me in labor to bring peace to birth. Rise up to answer the calling of wisdom, working together for peaceful reforms. Come to the tree of life, blooming forever, filling the world with her love that transforms. And the refrain is, follow her peaceful ways, follow her peaceful ways. Join holy wisdom to end all the strife. She gives us power to meet every challenge. Follow her peaceful ways, bringing new life. That's a beautiful hymn. There's a feeling of, yeah, this is what I want the world to be. And so often the tr- traditional language, while it may be beautiful, it's often otherworldly focused as well as male-oriented. And your hymns uh, really celebrate the creation and the justice-making that happens in the present. Well, thank you. I think starting with hymns to Holy Wisdom, and I have quite a few to her because it's so prominent in scripture. Now, if we include the Catholic canon with the books of wisdom and Ecclesiasticus, even more, but the book of Proverbs, feminine pronouns are used throughout. So sometimes congregations will accept these hymns more readily than they will uh, Sophia or Christ Sophia, because they might not have that understanding of that. Of course, I have hymns to Ruah, the Hebrew word for uh, scripture, to Shekinah, the Hebrew word meaning the uh, dwelling presence, glory of God, Shaddai, the breasted God. So I mind the scripture for the liberating peace and justice tradition. The themes of my hymns are social justice, liberation, care of creation. In my latest hymn book, Earth Transform with Music, I use the categories, justice categories. Of course, they overlap because uh, they're intersecting justice issues, but gender equality, racial equality, marriage equality, economic justice, care of creation, peacemaking. And those are the same categories I use in my book, She Lives, Sophia Wisdom Works in the World. I organize stories of ministers who are incorporating the female divine into their worship services and how this intersects with their peace and justice ministries. I'm speaking with Jan uh, Aldridge-Clanton. She's the author of uh, a number of hymn books, uh, Earth Transformed with Music, Inclusive Songs for Worship, uh, her most recent. Now, do you, when you, you talked about mining for scripture, 
Some have said that it's really the Bible itself and our tradition is so hopelessly patriarchal that, um, that, that, that we have to go outside of the tradition to find a lot of female images. But you've found many within the tradition itself. That's right. And I do realize that there are some feminists who uh, see the tradition as hopelessly misogynist. But uh, I am indebted to uh, so many uh, Christian feminist theologians. Uh, the first book that I ever read that uh, did mine scripture for all of these images and for support of gender equality was uh all We're Meant to Be by Letha Dawson Scanzoni and uh, Nancy Hardesty. And uh, currently, actually, I'm writing, uh, co-authoring a book with Kendra Whittle-Irons uh, about Letha Dawson Scanzoni. And uh, that book was an epiphany for me because uh, they looked at scripture and saw that uh, at its heart and using the best hermeneutical principles is supported gender equality. And this was the only way that the call to gender justice could have come to me because my Baptist tradition was uh, biblical. Everything had to be supported by the Bible. other books had come out. Uh, Betty Friedan's The Feminist Mystique had come out about 10 years before All Were Meant to Be. But I hadn't read the book. I wouldn't have uh, responded to that like I did All Were Meant to Be. So that was kind of a model for me. And then Virginia Raymond Mollencott's The Divine Feminine, The Biblical Imagery of God is Female. And I realized the power of looking within one's tradition. Now, I honor those whose call is outside the tradition or maybe in a more interfaith uh, kind of ministry, but my call is within the Christian tradition. And so, you know, I, I could see from the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1, 27, if male and female are created in the divine image, then the divine image has to include female and male, right? Uh-huh. And then... In Genesis, uh, the very uh, second uh, verse in the Bible pictures the spirit, Ruah, moving over the face of the waters to give birth to the universe. And Ruah is feminine. And the word translated moving is the Hebrew Rakoth used to compare God to a mother eagle in Deuteronomy 32:11. That's another beautiful image, and I have hymns to Mother Eagle. The mother eagle stirs up her nest to get the eaglets out on their own. It's a beautiful picture of a loving Creator nurturing us, but then uh, always aiming at the goal of our maturity. Uh, the divine midwife is in Psalm 22, 9 through 10. Uh, deity is a strong mother rock who gave birth to Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 18. Uh, I mentioned hope, ma, uh, wisdom in Proverbs 1, 3, 4, and 8. Uh, Isaiah 42, 13, and 14 balances male and female images of deity. The female image is a woman in labor. Uh, in Isaiah 49, a nursing woman, uh, one that, John, I would want to uh, highlight, uh, Isaiah 66, 13. Uh, As a mother comforts her child, so I, your God, will comfort you. 
I've been able to use that in all settings. Uh, I uh, have been a chaplain for many years. Uh, I was at Hillcrest Baptist Memorial uh, Hospital in uh, Waco and then in uh, Baylor Medical Center in Dallas. And even if I use that in the most with the most conservative patients or settings, people seem to resonate and uh, then comment on how comforting my prayer was. Now, it's different, though, when I say our mother. People don't understand figurative language. Our mother is a metaphor. Uh, God is like a mother, is a simile, both figurative language. But if I prayed our mother, then calls would go down to the director of pastoral care and I'd almost get fired. So... Uh, it's it's a lack of understanding of these beautiful metaphors and also just the metaphorical language in general of our uh, our language for deity. It's all metaphorical. Uh, the deity, the divine mystery, is so much greater than we can describe with words. And that's why I believe the multiplicity of these images is so important uh, and so I think what what I'm trying to do with the worship language, with the stories, with the uh, theological explanation for lay people is to expand spiritual experience and contribute to justice and equality and liberation. Now you have a CD of some Christmas songs uh, that you've uh, rewritten, changing some of the familiar Christmas carols uh, to more inclusive language. Have you had a chance to use that in worship during Advent or Christmas? If you have, tell me what that's been about. Yes, and I'm so pleased to hear from congregations all over the country that they are using these Christmas carols and then others of my hymns. I mentioned, oh, come Christ Sophia, come Christ Sophia, full of grace and wisdom. Come bless us, come challenge us to make life anew. Come bring us power, beauty, hope, and harmony. Oh, come Christ Sophia, wisdom and peace. I try to reframe darkness because I think so much of our imagery, even in scripture, the dark and light imagery can support racism. And I try to reframe darkness as creative bounty and beauty in my hymns. Oh, holy darkness, loving who nurtures and creates, sustain us through the longest night with dreams of One congregation that has 
used and encouraged my hymns from the beginning is a Lutheran church in San Francisco. It's Ebenezer, her church, Lutheran. And the pastor is uh, Reverend Stacy Bourne. And they had me to speak uh, for the first time in 2007 at a Faith and Feminism conference. And it was right after Inclusive Hymns for Liberating Christians had come out. And so they were singing these hymns and they uh, encouraged them. And then you asked about other congregations, Pullen Memorial Baptist. Uh, I've had Presbyterian, Episcopal, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, women priest uh, congregations sing them. And this uh, Christmas CD, Sing a Peace, is actually sung by a group at the Ebenezer Lutheran Church in San Francisco. I want to turn uh, now to your book, uh, Intercultural Ministry, uh, Hope for a Changing World, uh, which you edited along with Grace Jisun Kim. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how this book came to be and and perhaps... uh, make this definition, because I thought it was very good, uh, the difference between intercultural and multicultural. Yes, Grace and I met at a focus group in uh, Saskatoon, Canada. Dr. Marianne Beavis, professor, religion professor at St. Thomas More uh, University, had brought together some feminist theologians, particularly those of us who did incorporate the female divine into our theology and our worship experience. And I met Grace there. Then I interviewed Grace for my book, She Lives, Sophia Wisdom Works in the World. I had gotten to know her, and then we did a joint presentation at St. John the Divine Episcopal Church in New York City. There, we started talking about collaborating And I told her of my desire that I'd had for a long time to uh, create some kind of an intercultural church and to bring together gender and racial justice and uh, then the challenges that I'd had in doing that. And in in the introduction, I write about some of those challenges. But uh, she was uh, very much interested, too, in this because she had been not only experienced the the double discrimination of racism and sexism, but she wanted and had written some on this and has written quite a bit. We drew from many pastors and theologians and professors and invited them to write chapters of their experience. These were people who were actually putting intercultural churches and ministries to practice. We asked them to write about some of the challenges and some of the strategies for doing this. And uh, you mentioned the distinction between multiculturalism. Uh, Multicultural could be cultures together worshiping, but not giving equal value and not really looking at the power structures. So, uh, and usually it's the dominant culture, the white culture that still sets the uh, structure of the church and the worship practices. So our definition, intercultural churches and ministries bring people of various cultures together to learn from one another, giving equal value and power to each culture. That's so important, equal value and power, preserving cultural differences and celebrating the variety of cultural traditions. 
I'm Presbyterian and, and served in Montana for a while and, and in uh, northeast Montana as a, uh, the reservation in a town called Wolf Point and another one called Poplar. Not large towns, but both have Presbyterian churches. Uh, one is a Native American uh, congregation. The other was a, a white one. And, and people ask, well, why, why don't you work together? And, and some folks, well, they do work together, but why two churches? Many from the Native American church said, well, when we work together, it's often the white people who come and, and boss us around. And I think uh, there, there, that's an, an, a negative example of how segregated there, there's the same denomination in a small town that has difficulty finding ways to be intercultural. What is the attitude uh, that people have to bring? And you've had experience yourself in, in leading an intercultural congregation. Am I right? Yes, I have uh, experience in trying to form an intercultural church with an African-American minister, but I realized that he was having trouble looking at the concept of co-pastoring. He kept referring to me as his assistant, and so I realized that there are all kinds of challenges in his tradition, in African-American tradition, the male pastor is so predominant, predominant in civil, has been in civil rights. I realized that trying to dethrone sexism and racism is quite a challenge. I've had my fullest experience of an intercultural ministry through an organization that I co-chair with Reverend Sheila Shows Ross, who is African-American Baptist pastor of a church in Pittsville, Massachusetts. And her story is in intercultural ministry. Her chapter is Beyond Resurrection Sunday. She's pastoring a predominantly white church and trying to make it more intercultural. She talks about the importance of different worship styles and this Resurrection Sunday in which she used uh, a variety of worship styles. She also talks about uh, the importance of representation of diverse cultures and leadership. That is essential to have diverse leadership and diverse cultures and to give equal value and power to all cultures represented yeah, there was one one essay that I was reading in uh, in particular that I thought was was very helpful. Uh, not only in the church, I was actually just thinking of uh, of the radio station, the community radio station here in Portland that I work with. Uh, that is uh, has has its move to become the beloved community, an intercultural relationship, and and working uh, with people of variety of cultures and genders. It takes a lot of intentionality on all all parts, uh, doesn't it? To to for that democratic process to to make sure to hear uh, all of the voices and and how that process can be long and and perhaps sometimes tedious and difficult but incredibly rewarding yes can you talk a little bit more about the decision making process in regards to an intercultural uh, community Yes, let me use the example of equity for women in the church. When uh, Sheila and I got together to form this, we decided that uh, we were going to be intentional about picking the people who would come to this meeting uh, to form the organization. We had at uh, Wake Forest Divinity School, and so we raised money to pay people's ways so finances would not be uh, a hindrance, and we 
were very intentional about picking people from various cultures. And then in our discussions, we were very egalitarian so that all voices were heard. And out of that, we formed this uh, 501c3 organization. It's uh, ecumenical, it's intercultural, it's uh, national. Uh, we're virtual, we meet, uh, uh, well, we're meeting on, on Zoom now, but then we have uh, times that we get together and for conferences, but we were very intentional about picking the board too. And so the worship services that we've had have been the most intercultural that I have ever experienced. And I think we have uh, dethroned sexism as well as racism because the, the language is inclusive. Uh, some have said that, uh, uh, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated and the most sexist hour uh, of the week. And that, to me, is tragic. Most segregated and sexist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, and that gives the importance of why intercultural and uh, intergender worship is so important, isn't it? Yes, yes. And uh, one of the chapters in intercultural ministry uh Brad Braxton, who created a church in Maryland called the Open Church, he has a passage on dethroning sexist language, and he uh, he has this powerful statement about language. Language possesses both life-giving and death-dealing power. Thus, what we say and how we say it are matters of great moral significance. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote, uh, John, in the introduction to uh, my uh, second hymn book, Inclusive Hymns for Liberation, Peace, and Justice, these words, how can we act fairly toward people when we exclude or devalue them in our most sacred rituals and language? How can we profess to love everyone when we leave out more than half of humanity in our naming of divinity? How can we say that everyone is created in the divine image when we leave out female divine images in our worship? Yes, powerful. You know, uh, you mentioned uh, on your webpage, there's a question that you have at the top. It says, if God can include three persons, can't God include two genders and more? And I'm thinking of the more. Uh, now we are becoming far more sensitive as we should be. Uh, and I wonder if we are really being inclusive enough. Well, I'm, I know we're not. But how we can be more uh, inclusive and liberating towards transgender uh, individuals and how that might affect the language of, of hymns or, or uh, ritual and, and liturgy. Uh, yes. Uh, in my hymns, uh, I have uh, included genders instead of just uh, gender, uh, and I'll put gender or, or male and female and more. One uh, hymn that's in Earth Transform with Music, Praise the Source of All Creation, uh, it begins, praise the source of all creation, giving life throughout the earth, blessing every love relation, filling all with sacred worth, celebrate all forms and colors, varied beauty everywhere, streams of goodness overflowing, wondrous gifts for all to share. Second uh, stanzas, many genders, many races, all reflect divinity. Uh, so that's one way mm -hmm. uh, to just uh, acknowledge genders. Uh, 
Virginia Ramey Mollenkite, whom I mentioned as the author of The Divine Feminine, uh, has also written a book called Omnigender. And she says that when we use the male term God along with the female pronoun she, we're including the people among us who are transgender because God is a male term. Now, many people will say, no, God is neuter, but goddess is really the feminine form and also God has had uh, for centuries uh, connotations of the male that when you say God, most people think of a male God. So so God and the female pronoun she, she sees as one of the best ways at this point to include transgender people. My guest is Jan Eldridge Clanton. Uh, check her webpage, uh, janeldridgeclanton.com. Uh, she's the writer of a number of hymn books, including her latest, uh, Earth Transformed, with music, inclusive songs for worship. Uh, so also uh, editor of Intercultural Ministry, Hope for a Changing World. Thank you, Dr. Aldridge Clanton, for all of your important work and, and for being right in the heart of the struggle. Thank you yeah. so much, John. It's been a it's been a joy to talk with you. You have been listening to Progressive Spirit. It's formatted for radio and is distributed through Pacifica and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Catch podcasts at ProgressiveSpirit.net. From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be well.